Hey, welcome, Taste of Chicago fans, to Booth One. We're the podcast that celebrates the art of lively conversation, bringing you the latest in popular culture and the performing arts world. We're named after the famous Booth One table at the old Ambassador East Hotel's pump room, where celebrities and dignitaries from around the world would gather to see and be seen as they stopped in Chicago on their way across the country by train. I'm Gary Zabinski, alongside my partner, Roscoe. Roscoe. How are you today, Roscoe? Terrific. Welcome to the Taste of Chicago 2016. You can hear that little uh, drizzle sound in the background. You know what that is? That's Buckingham Fountain. Yeah, we're about, what do you say, maybe 50 yards away from that thing? Do you know, I I am an expert on Buckingham Fountain. I did not know this. (laughs) Yes, I am full of surprises. Well, I have something to tell the folks. If you're looking for things to do later in the week... If you've lived in the Chicago uh, city for a while and you've, you've heard of the complex plumbing and pumps and the manual controls that used to run Buckingham Fountain before it was computer-wired, it's all computer-controlled now, isn't it, Ron? Yes, yes. It, it, do they do that here in America, or is it some uh, foreign country? Wait. Buckingham Fountain, what you're looking at now, was all run out of Atlanta, Georgia. And then they decided that was kind of a silly idea, so now all of the engineering takes place here. Do you know how much water is in Buckingham Fountain, Gary? I I do not know. I know how many jets there are. How many jets are there? There are 134 jets. 134 jets, which move a million and a half gallons of water. In what, a minute? No, no, it holds a million and a half gallons of water. Oh, all together in in the reservoir. It was dedicated in 1927... 50,000 people came to the dedication, and there was a big marching band that played. <laughs> no kidding. And guess, guess who led the big marching band? John Philip Sousa. Bingo. Yes, you win. You win a gift card I, I for $100. Win a gift card. I'm taking them all. Sorry, everyone. Thanks for playing. No more left. And, and, and unlike almost anything else in Chicago, it has uh, remained amazingly intact. It looks exactly like it did when it was dedicated 89 years ago. The only time anything happened is someone thought it would be a good idea to wade into Buckingham Fountain and saw off two of the fish heads and then take them to a pawn shop where the pawn shop dealer said, gee, these are interesting. Let me go in the back and look at something. And he called the police and he said, I have the fish heads that were just stolen from Buckingham Fountain. So it still looks, it looks great and that's what you're hearing you're hearing a million and a half gallons of water kerplashing in the background. That's one of those most stupid criminals in the world jokes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I took fish heads from Buckingham Fountain into a pawn shop. And no one will catch me. Well, it takes a lot. In fact, two underground levels to keep those 134 jets firing water in pretty patterns circulating, as uh, my uh, friend Roscoe has told us. 1.5 million gallons of water. Well, you can get a glimpse at how all of this works, if you've ever been curious, on the Buckingham Fountain underground pump room tour that is with guide amy weber who conducts the tour for a company called atlas obscura they're doing the tour it's 35 dollars right here at the fountain just go to their website atlas a-t-l-a-s obscura o-b-s-c-u-r-a 35 bucks and you can get an underground tour of the pumping stations for Buckingham Fountain. Hey, our special guest is one of the most successful restaurateurs in Chicago today. Proprietor of The Gage, Acanto, The Dawson, and the brand new Beacon Tavern, Mr. Billy Lawless Jr. is here. Hello, Gary. (laughs) You've got a great voice. At the end of the podcast today, we'll be giving away $100 gift cards to one or more of these establishments. All you have to do to be eligible is 
is to uh, sign up on our mailing list over there to my left where that pretty uh, blonde uh, young woman is standing. Get your name on there, and uh, you'll be entered in a drawing, which we'll do right at the end of our podcast. You might walk out of here with the price of a full meal at one of these fantastic restaurants, three of which are within walking distance, uh, just across the street on Michigan Avenue. Billy, I want to start with a question for you. This is about your dad. Yeah. You, you've been here in Chicago for, you've been in America for 18 years. You're originally from? Uh, Galway. Galway, Ireland. Yeah, west coast of Ireland. And uh, your father is Billy Law's senior, of course. Correct, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your father and how he came to be in America, what, 16, 18 years ago, I guess now? Yeah. Tell us a little about his immigration and naturalization process, what he went through. He was a, he was a pub owner in Galway, correct? Yes, yeah, so dad initially was a, a dairy farmer. and They used to supply the, the restaurants and the hotels in, in Galway, our hometown, with uh, milk and cream, etc. As the city expanded, uh, he, our land was so close to the city center, he had to uh, sell it to developers, and that's how he got into the restaurant and bar business. And was he immediately successful yeah, in the restaurant he, bar business? Yeah, he was very successful. So he had, se- he had, sev- sorry, he had several, uh, several different uh, uh, locations throughout Galway, and they're always very popular. And, uh, you know, the last place he had, uh, he sold to actually get into forestry. Into forestry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And he decided to kind of give all of that up and move to America. It was a dream of his, right? He always wanted to live in America. He loved America. He traveled here extensively. And then my sister was a great oarswoman, and she got a full scholarship to uh, UMass. And at the same time, my other sister was working for his first cousin, and he came out for a visit, met his realtor, and said, if you ever see a place, uh, I may be interested in buying a bar in Chicago. And the, the realtor called him. He flew over, and... Uh, about seven days later, he flew back and told my mom, by the way, I bought a bar in Chicago. I'm moving in six months. Because <laughs> <laughs> there, there are no Irish people in Chicago. Yeah, it was a very small community. <laughs> very small community. Uh, what was the name of the first place he opened? Uh, he opened a, a bar called the uh, Irish, uh, Irish Oak. The on, Irish Oak. Uh, up by Wrigley Field, uh, 35, or 3511 North Clark Street. It's still ah, there. Yes, I used to drink there back in the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now it's, it's a sports bar now. Back then it was a little more authentic. At one point, he was employing about 250 people in his various establishments, but he had trouble becoming a U.S. citizen uh, or being, uh, being even a candidate for citizenship. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, we all did, actually. Uh, yeah, the INS lost my file. I, was, uh, I had a lot of trouble getting my own citizenship. I actually became a citizen before Dad, and then I sponsored Dad and Mom. You sponsored your own parents yeah, yeah, to be com- citizens. Comes full circle. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, How were you able to do that? How could you get your father to become a citizen? Did you marry an American? Oh, yeah, yeah, my wife. Yeah, Catherine. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I owe her $10,000 in two years more of marriage. Oh, boy. (laughs) I hope we all heard that. Is it $10,000 or two years more of marriage? Or is it... I will split the difference. (laughs) (laughs) So your father's a full uh, citizen of the United States now. Correct. Yeah. And I understand he's also a senator in Ireland. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Just recently, uh, the uh, Prime Minister of Ireland, Enda Kenny, uh, met Dad, a, uh, a full member of the Irish Senate, uh, with uh, and is basically his sort of privy is the uh, Irish immigrants in America, representing the Irish immigrants in America. Your establishments now are you have four restaurants, as I mentioned: the Gage, Acanto, the Began Tavern. Yeah. And the Dawson. And yeah. you're going to have another one very yeah. soon. Uh, actually, I will open hopefully within uh, 12 days. We just got all our liquor licenses yesterday and our occupancy cards. It's up on Southport and Henderson. It's going to be a very uh, fun, sexy uh, southern Italian concept called Coda de Volpe, which means the tail of the fox. 
What's going to be sexy about it? Uh, just the whole decor. It's very uh, kind of mid-century Italian chic. You going to serve any hot dogs there? Uh, maybe in pasta. <laughs> hot dogs and pasta. Here's a question for you. Yeah. Do you happen to know how many hot dogs are uh, eaten in America between Memorial Day and Labor Day every year? Let's take a wild guess. That's about four months. Uh, how about um, half a billion? That's, that's, that's a pretty good guess. Roscoe, I know you eat your share of hot dogs between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Uh, I, uh, I'm going to say, you said half a billion? Yeah. Wow. I'm going to say uh, two billion hot dogs are consumed in America in this summer months. Well, you're both, you're both on the right track in the billions, but you're not anywhere near it. Seven billion hot dogs are eaten by Americans in wow. those four months. That averages about 818 per second. I, I was amazed by that figure. And you don't even serve hot dogs in your restaurant. I will now. <laughs> it's, it's, a good, it's a good meal choice. Doesn't that seem like an awful lot, Roscoe? It does seem like an awful lot. I, I can't even imagine. If you laid them end to end, I'm not sure how far a, a 7 billion hot dogs would go. How many hot dogs? I, I'm not a hot dog person. They kind of gross me out. We know that Joey Chestnut, who just won the Nathan Hot Dogs Eating Contest, set the record this year with, what was it, 62? In 10 minutes. 62 in 10 minutes. Um, you mentioned your wife, Catherine. I, I've not had the pleasure of meeting her. I understand she contributes to her, your business in, in many aspects. Is she your design guru? Uh, both is, yeah, Kathy and I are incredibly involved in the design process. Uh, she, actually, all the good things I've done is probably, she's been the font of most of the great things. Typically, it takes me about two, to, uh, probably two weeks to come around to her way of thinking. So, uh, usually it's a little bit of an argument then, oh, that was a great idea. Who, who usually wins those? You do? Uh, I'm a little larger, but she's a little more vicious. <laughs> Here's something I find unusual uh, for a proprietor of many hospitality establishments like yourself. You do virtually no traditional advertising or marketing for any of your locations. Am I right about that? Uh, yeah, correct. Uh, what things do you do and are you doing that find work well because your businesses are considered extraordinarily successful the beacon tavern has been opened about six weeks you don't even have an awning it doesn't even say beacon tavern this is at what 402 uh, uh 405 north wabash 405 north wabash right on the other side of the trump tower there in between the trump and the Wrigley building actually. yeah so what do you do marketing wise uh, maybe yeah. there's some business owners here who are interested in what, what they could do. Yeah, it's a great question. I think from, from, my, from my perspective and for my kind of business model, the best, uh, best way for a restaurant to be successful is obviously word of mouth, quality of execution, and quality of concept. So you can't really get that across in a print ad. You know, we have a huge now, we're very, we, we got a very successful social uh, media presence in terms of Facebook and Twitter, but really it's a people-to-people -people business. So it's the relationships that you develop within the restaurant itself and how that translates to them discussing it and bringing it out to their, 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 their people at large. So you let the atmosphere and the food speak for itself, and your hope is that people will enjoy it enough that it will, they will spread the word that way. Absolutely. Obviously, uh, editorial is always very important. You know, so uh, editorial is, is, very, is very prominent to help us grow. So, again, focusing on the quality of execution, the quality of the product, you know, our hospitality, our sense of warmth. Mm -hmm. and the conviviality of all our, all our locations. When you say editorial, you're talking about the, the news coverage you get and the reviews? Uh, more, more editorial, yeah, from the, the local magazines and uh, hopefully uh, national. Because you can't, you can't purchase that. Uh, a million years ago, I worked in the high-end restaurant business. Yeah. And, I, and I'm nervous for you 
because it's, I'll just be frank, it's a, it's a business with a high failure rate. Sure. I, I, I don't know if this is still true, but so I, I read somewhere that if you wanted to lose money, either open to use car lot or go into the restaurant business. <laughs> the, those are, or, or invest in show business. Or invest in show business. Yeah, it's certainly a, quite a challenging industry, uh, although if you do your homework and you have a sense of uh, clarity on uh, what you wish to accomplish as, as, a, as an operator, as a restaurant group, uh, obviously location is incredibly important. Actually, it's paramount. You know, so I really believe in the locations I've chosen today to, to, for all my locations. Okay. I want to run, run some questions by you. When I worked yeah. in the restaurant industry, I, I worked for a, a wonderful man named George Badonsky, who was very much, may, maybe he was the Billy Lawless of his time, but he changed a lot of things with restaurants in Chicago. One of the things that he changed was that at that time, if you went out for a fine dining meal, you always had a waiter in a tuxedo. And I, I'm, I'm talking, this, this is, he uh, came to fame in the prominence probably in the mid-70s, so I'm right. going, going back quite some time. But he liked informal service. Sure. He didn't believe that you had to, to uh, just ask, ask the customer what they wanted. And, and he thought waiters should engage in chit-chat and be comfortable. He also believed that customers didn't know the difference between fresh and frozen fish. <laughs> the, that the customer would not the, know. That the customer wouldn't know. You couldn't tell if a fish had been frozen or not. And he did a, a, once did a taste testing with critics from the Chicago Tribune, the Sun-Times, and Chicago Magazine, and none of them could tell the difference. They all lost. Wow. Do, you, do you think that still bears? Uh, well, especially with techniques today, especially with, uh, with uh, fla- uh, flash freezing on, on a lot of these great boats that... Uh, get most of the catch for all the restaurants in Chicago. I mean, he's probably correct. Oysters. Can we talk? I'm jumping to oysters. Sure. You have yeah, oysters. Let's, let, let's talk about one of Roscoe's favorite subjects, oysters. Is it you, true that one should not eat oysters in months that have no R in them? Is that still true? I don't think so. We typically source our oysters at this time of year as further as furthest north as possible. And why are oysters so gosh darn expensive? Uh, they're delicate. Uh, they, uh, they're incredibly perishable. It's just the cost of getting them to the market. What are your favorite oysters, Billy? Do you like the East Coast, the West Coast? Uh, I personally like, uh, I like uh, East Coast, and I grew up in Galway on the West Coast of Ireland, so we're very famous for our oysters there, or any kind of oyster from uh, the French coast by Brittany. Is there, some, is there an experience I would have eating an oyster in Ireland that I, that I couldn't have here? Are they brinier? They're a little brinier. Uh, you'll get a perfect pint of Guinness and probably a punch in the head if you don't uh, drink the Guinness correctly. <laughs> Is there a correct way to drink Guinness with oysters? Yes, very fast and keep drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true of Guinness at any time, I think, as far as I'm concerned. What are the biggest challenges that you're facing or that a, a person like you, a successful businessman, faces here in Chicago running multiple hospitality establishments? Is it just like in the old days, you had to actually know somebody who knew somebody who knew the alderman in order to get a liquor license? Is it still as difficult as that? Or with your reputation, have you found it easier each go around? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, right now you just got to go through the process. I mean, there's a a very specific uh, path with the city in terms of how you have to get your liquor license, what you need to do that, the building permits, the occupancy. We just went through it. The cost of entry now in terms of construction costs is, is exorbitant. Uh, you know, staffing right now, the city has seen such a development and a growth of restaurants and hotels, and each of those new hotels are offering their own F&B uh, uh, outlets. And so the, the work pool is really, really tight right now. So it's very hard to staff. 
When you open a restaurant, do you, do you, when you, you're doing, figuring out the finances, do you have a lifespan in mind? And once upon a time, they used to say an average restaurant lasted about 13 years. Sure. Uh, again, I think it's the, it boils down to your location and the concept. Uh, I tend to go for more of a timeless feel for my restaurants to try and mitigate that. I, I mean, the, the investment is so, is, so, is, is so great at the onset, I don't particularly want to, re, uh, you know, to redesign or reconcept, which I did for a canto that used to be called Henri which was a very formal French restaurant. It was beautiful. Oh, fantastic uh, food. Uh, uh, thank you so much, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Uh, it was a great restaurant. Unfortunately, it was just for its, its concept. It was, uh, it was too formal, uh, too much of a Donny commitment for the area. And uh, so we reconcepted that two years ago. It was right here at 18 uh, South uh, Michigan, right? Yeah, yeah. Now what, it's called what, what do you mean by too much of a dining commitment? It was just too formal. I mean, it wasn't more. It wasn't an impulse restaurant. You know, right now my the new restaurant Acanto is Italian. It's a little more fun. It's a little more casual. It's more of an impulse restaurant. You can come in shorts. You can come dressed up. You know, where Henri was very formal. The room itself looked like the inside of a jewel box. So ultimately, it was just you know it was too much of a, a formal experience for the, for for yeah. where it was located. It, it certainly wasn't amenable to the walk-in traffic. Are there people here who have eaten at any of Billy's restaurants, The Gage or Acanto or, oh, well, our producer is waving both hands uh, and The Beacon. She's eaten at all of those. If you have not, I highly recommend it. Tell us, Billy, maybe a couple of your favorite dishes that are now being served at your restaurants. What's, oh, sure. what's trendy now? What, what are people really wanting to eat? That's a great question. I think uh, food has really come full circle. I mean, people just want uh, simplicity and uh, quality on a plate. So a lot of the fluff and foof of like foams and uh, rehydration of certain uh, ingredients is kind of going to the wayside and sort of the, uh, just the quality of the, of the products hitting the plate. So for myself right now, we have a dish at uh, Beacon Tavern. It's a uh, lobster bucatini with a... Uh, French curry sauce, fresh mint, and uh, creme fraiche. Mmm. I, I have a Dawson oh, yeah. menu in front of me. Yeah. And it, it, as you say, you have a simple, well-prepared food with kind of a touch of whimsy to it. Sure. This, this is, you know, you have vegan paella, for instance. Oh, fantastic. But you have something also, you also have uh, roasted lamb loin, which is, uh, a, well, a popular dish, I'm sure. Yeah. Lots yeah. of people would like that, a grilled sirloin steak. You, you have pork mac and cheese. What's pork mac and cheese? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a big sloppy mess in a plate <laughs> with uh, rich, creamy, uh, house-made cheese sauce, uh, Noodles and uh, we make a house a house made uh, pork belly that's smoked on on site and uh, oh. sauteed in there. So, it, sounds very healthful, low cholesterol. You know what they say: a summer body starts in winter. People love that dish. <laughs> hey, a couple of other things you might like to do uh, this weekend or coming up uh, in Chicago: uh, the Grand Park Music Festival, of course, always has their Friday and Saturday night concerts. Um, the Grand Park Orchestra and Chorus uh, are playing. A Cole Porter celebration tonight uh, at Millennium Park. The Grand Park Festival is scheduled for seasoned Broadway singers, uh, including famous cabaret uh, star and Chicago local Karen Mason, uh, to tackle Porter's delicate, witty lyrics. Well, okay, they're not always delicate. Um, for instance, if you can't be a ham and do Hamlet, she will not give a damn or a damlet. That's from Kiss Me Kate. Um, the program leans heavily on two Broadway shows, Kiss Me Kate and Anything Goes. They are playing tonight at 8 o'clock at the Pritzker Pavilion, the J. Pritzker Pavilion, right at the end of Grant Park. I 
highly encourage you to try to check that out. If you find yourself tired of taste as 8 o'clock rolls around and it's getting to be dusk, head on over there. It is free. Let me say that again. It is free. Free music. Uh, and this Cole Porter celebration is really quite astounding. Um, we, we were there last night. It was magical. It was magical. We were there with only about 15,000 other people. Just a few of our watching, friends. Watching this mm-hmm. terrific concert. And, and again, if, if you're not from Chicago... The Millennium Park is the largest free outdoor classical music festival in the world. And it's stunning. The, the sound design is stunning. It's a world-class orchestra. It was an amazing night. We had, surprisingly, booth one seats. Oh. Uh, Karen Mason, who is a, a homegrown talent. She's from Chicago. Arlington Heights. Arlington Heights. Looked and sounded fantastic. And uh, it was thrilling to see, I've been watching her for 30 years, and so it was thrilling to see her starring, and I'm sure it's the largest audience she's ever played for in her life, so it had to be thrilling for her. The Grand Park Music Festival always does fantastic programming. This one in particular will make you feel very special. It'll make you feel like you're having your own Booth One experience. Uh, All of the singers are beautifully dressed. The two women are in beaded gowns. You'll think you're at a lavish socialite gala. I can't recommend it more highly enough. Uh, Billy, here's another question about food for you. How do you make chicken fried lobster? It's the same, it's the same process as, uh, as fried chicken. Really? You take a, lot of, a raw lobster tail, yep. you put it in the chicken batter, dredge, you, it. dredge it and stuff, and you dredge it down drop it in the deep fryer? It, that's it. Holy cats. And, and that's a signature, that's a dish at, at, at the Dawson. At it's the one Dawson. of our best sellers. People love it, yeah. How that's much it. lobster will I get in my chicken fried lobster? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> About a half a pound. A half a pound? Yeah. Can I have two, please? Sure. <laughs> like, got it. I, I may have to staple you to that chair because I think you're going to be running off to get some <laughs> very soon. So. We're talking a lot about food. I can't imagine anything more tasty. We, we touched on a little bit of this already, Billy, but I, I, wanna, I want you to expand on it if you can. Tell yeah. us about your philosophy towards the customer experience. Rarely have I ever eaten at any of your establishments, and I've been to all of them except the Dawson, I admit it. When either you or one of your managers doesn't come by to ask us how our experience is, how is your meal, are you having a wonderful time, is there anything else I can do for you? Sure. You, you don't get that at every restaurant in town. Is that, is that part of a philosophy that you try to lay down across your, your, your platform? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mom and Dad were very hands-on, so growing up uh, in, in their restaurants and hotels, uh, that was something that they always instilled was just the... A sense of warmth, genuine warmth, and a, a genuine sense of just welcoming people to their establishments, uh, and that's something that's, uh, that's been with me since uh, you know I went to hotel school. It was something that was uh, taught to me too by one of my mentors in uh, the hotel world, a guy called Helmut Plucker, and to give people a connection to you, to not only to the restaurant but to you. So it's more of a personal experience. What, what was that man's name? Helmut Plucker. Helmut Plucker. Yeah. I'm changing my name. <laughs> Darn it, I was going to do that. Maybe I'll just change my middle name to Helmut. Hello, I'm Helmut Plucker. Uh, he's brilliant. It, and it, you studied hospitality? Is that- Ironically, I went to a university called, I went to University of Buckingham outside London. Yeah. And it's a very Irish tradition to be very hospitable to guests, is it not? Uh, especially in, in Depending eating what part of the country you're from. Yeah, which, 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 which parts are unfriendly? I'm going to write these down. Tipperary, Dublin. Tipperary. Well, we're a long way from Tipperary. Tipperary. <laughs> 
If you want to have uh, chicken fried lobster or pork mac and cheese, we are giving away $100 gift certificates to his restaurants at the end of our podcast today. All you have to do is sign up on our mailing list, which is over at that table to your right, my left. Give us your email address. That's all you have to do. And you'll be a subscriber to Booth One, and you'll be entered for a drawing for one of these, which we'll do at the end. You could have a, a basically a free, a free meal. Something else you might like to do uh, while you're possibly hanging around in town, I always like to give a shout-out to this group. I've done this before, Roscoe, and you like these people. You know, Chicago's known for its improv comedy scene. I'm sure you've all heard of the Second City, which is the, the top one. Well, there's another one. There's a very small one, and it's kind of a niche group. They're Chicago's premier all-psychotherapist comedy improv troupe. (laughs) On Saturday, August 13th and 27th, they'll be at the Open Door in Oak Park. Any of you you live out in Oak Park? But it's a group of... And here's here's an actual picture of them. It's a group of psychotherapists who do improv comedy. I I don't know if they do all of it about uh, psychotherapy or not, but I'm sure they have great, great, great insights into the human condition. Billy... Let me ask you this. If you could have done, or possibly still could, do any other type of work other than being a restaurateur, what, what is it you might have done? You're, you're, kind, of a, you're kind of a large uh, gentleman. Um, you're, you look athletic. You look like you played yourself a little bit of rugby. Was it, it, would you like to have been a sports um, athlete? Would you like to have done something else, anything other than being this? Well, that's a great question. I, I don't know. All I ever done was... Uh worked in this industry. I've never actually worked in any other industry throughout my whole career. In your wildest imagination, if you had to stop doing it today? uh, Just like uh, uh, a DJ. You could be a podcaster (laughs) or or a DJ. You could spin discs on the radio. It's a mad techno. Really? A DJ? Yeah. And that that would be the kind of music you'd play? Yeah, I'm a bit of a dodgy old raver. A what? A dodgy old raver. A dodgy old, old raver. raver. Ah. Did, did you play music when you were when you were younger? Uh, no, actually, ironically, uh, when I went into boarding school, we had a, they had a full orchestra, and on the second day of boarding school, they brought us into the orchestra hall, and they told us to pick any instrument we wished, and the teachers, and uh, instead, I picked up a rugby ball and went out to the rugby pitches. Going back to yeah. working in restaurants and your sure. your training at the hospitality uh, <laughs> college. The, the most difficult issue that I had working in the restaurant industry was dealing with difficult customers, sure. people with a sense of entitlement, yeah. people who complain about everything, right. people who maybe have had 45 martinis before <laughs> ordering their main course. What would you have said to a young Roscoe about how to handle these yeah, situations? I, I always say, take the high road. Take the high road? Yeah, it's not worth it. But, but, I mean, do you ever have situations where you need to Absolutely. get someone out of the restaurant? Oh, 100%. But, you know, you always just take the high road and you try and uh, usher them out as gently and as, uh, you know, uh, courtesy as possible. Uh, the last thing you want is a confrontation. And has that always been successful uh, for you? For the most part, yeah, absolutely. Damn, I thought you were going to, to talk about coming to fisticuffs with your customers. Yeah, I had one, one, one situation at the gauge where a gentleman just wouldn't leave and I had to, uh, I had to kick him out and it, it got physical. It's not no, you don't, you're, and you don't look like someone to be trifled with. 
yeah, but I, I'm, I'm not a violent individual, so. Yeah, you seem, you seem very kind-hearted and very kind of a softy, but uh, if push came to shove, yeah. I wouldn't want to get into yeah, a match with you. I would not want to get you. into a fist fight with you, no. Not in any way. Uh, this touched on something uh, else, but which we'll get to in a minute. Your restaurants have wonderful wine lists. Yeah. Why they're wonderful is because they're completely readable by stupid people like me who don't know anything about wines other than sure. when I drink it, I know if I like it or not. Sure. And so I don't have to go through page after page of French and South American and Australian and West Coast and Northern California and Southern California sure. and Italian. You, your, your wine lists are, are very simple, much like your menus. Um, is that something that your sommeliers or your, your wine expert has has recommended as the way people want to drink wine these days? Is this part of your philosophy as well? Yeah, absolutely. When we started the gate, Sheb Incha was our original sommelier, and she was wonderful. And she really wanted to bring wine to the masses. And I think wine is such an intimidating topic for a lot of people, partly because most people can't pronounce a lot of, a lot of the, the wines that they see on menus. And secondly, there's so much wine out there, it's very hard to know what's good and what's not good. So to give people a form where they can look at a menu and actually feel like they know what they're reading and, help, and then help them you know, with their choices. At The Beacon, we actually took all the, the pain of uh, choice away and we've met all, all our by the, by the bottles are $49. And each, in each category, they go from light to full body. And, and your wine's by the glass. You have a page of whites, a page sure. of reds. It says $12, glass of wine. Yeah. And they give you five or six different selections. None of this, well, should I have the $18 Chardonnay or the $11 sure. Chardonnay? Sure. Well, yeah, John McDaniel's really old. I mean, he, he's, he runs all my wine programs now. And John is, is, is very just, he's just very natural with how he uh, imparts his knowledge. And, he, you know, he makes people feel, you know, they're not stupid when they're talking about wine because, you know, yeah. uh, wine can be very intimidating. Yeah. Going along with, with that, something that George Badansky used to talk about is that one of his theories of running restaurants is that when people who have worked all day, you yeah. spend all day making decisions and making choices and asking people to do things, when you finally get to sit down at a restaurant, people don't want to make a lot of decisions, a lot of choices. Sure. Does that feed into how you design the, your menus and your dining experiences. I just want chicken. I don't want to have to choose between four different kinds of chicken. Absolutely. Uh, that, that really goes back to our, our, our training with our team and uh, the menu knowledge that we impart to them so that they can relate that to the guests so that, so that again, that pain of choice is taken away from the guests, that we can guide them uh, in a manner that they want to be guided. Let's, let's talk about politics for just a few minutes. Ge- geopolitics. Okay. Ireland, main Ireland, not Northern Ireland, yeah. but Ireland itself is, is part of the EU and yeah. has been for, for many, many years. Yeah. Um, Northern Ireland is going to Brexit um, with the rest of Great Britain. Sure. Do you see any impact on life in Ireland if, well, now they're talking about having a second referendum yeah. and re-voting because people were like, oh, gee, I didn't realize that this would happen if I said sure. yes. Your vote matters. If this all goes through, do you see any significant difference for, for Ireland, your home country? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, England and Northern Ireland, they're still part of EU. Uh, but with the Brexit, uh, you know, there's really big concerns in Ireland about the return of the border. Right now, there's like free travel. There's open borders between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, you so, don't even have to show passports you know, at this and, point, right? You know, in the olden days, uh, you know, when, uh, when all the troubles are, you had the, I mean, the checkpoints were 
very scary, intimidating. Uh, it was like, difficult, it, difficult time for the, for 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 both Ireland's. It was like passing between East and West yeah, Berlin. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, during the war, I mean, uh, there were there were fortresses. But now it's very free. It's 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 even it's easier to go from Northern Ireland into Ireland than it is for us to go into Canada. There's no real no, customs there's, there's or no, anything. There's no customs at all, no, there's no border. But uh, there could very well be. Yeah, I mean, for Ireland, Nord- uh, for the Republic of Ireland, the, the ramifications are England is Ireland's largest uh, trading partner. So uh, there's some serious trade uh, ramifications if England does actually leave the EU, uh, especially with, with the, single, uh, I mean, the single market. I mean, that was a huge part of the whole, uh, of the whole inception of, of the EU. No. Something else you might consider doing this summer, nearly 30 years ago, um, a man named Francois Pasquier started a picnic event in Paris with the simple idea of meeting new friends. Participants, they'd meet in a public location and they'd dress all in white so that they would recognize each other. It became known as Les Dinner en Blanc, the dinner in white. And it was an, uh, an annual event, and then it went international. Well, this year marks the fifth year in Chicago. In 2015, 1,600 participants attended. And since the event runs on the just bring a new friend model, this year they're expecting 30,000 people to attend this thing. That's a lot of people converging on one spot. Now, the meeting point of the picnic area is to remain secret. So you have to dress all in white, and you have to carry a picnic basket. Some people bring folding tables and chairs. Returning members and their referrals get first crack at tickets. But you can register for the waiting list now, and you can plan to purchase tickets on July 20th when they become available. The event is going to be held on August 12th, but still, the location is a closely guarded secret until just about like the day before. Where where would you hold all that? How can you have a, a closely guarded secret location to accommodate those many people. I, uh, perhaps it's going to be in your yard. Perhaps it's going to be <laughs> in my yard. Maybe it'll be outside the gauge. You never can tell. Um, uh, participants should note that they need to provide their own picnics. Wine packages can be purchased at the website. Beer, hard liquor, and outside wine are prohibited. The meeting location is available to guests only. The picnic location is secret until the event. Tickets are thirty-seven fifty, and go to their website. Les Dinner en Blanc is what it's called. It sounds like a real, real gas. <laughs> People dressed all in white. Doesn't it sound like a Fellini film? It does. Billy, I want to ask you another question. Something else that's changed in in, uh, the fine dining experience lately is that suddenly everyone has food allergies. Everyone is gluten intolerant, or I get depressed if I eat gluten, or I'm a vegetarian, or I'm a pretend vegetarian, or I'm vegan. You know, back in the day when I worked in restaurants, if someone had said, I'm gluten intolerant, I would have said, get out. <laughs> yeah, that's all I so, Get out. We can't possibly help you. Do, do you accommodate all of those? I'm a touch issues? more judicious, I have to be honest. But, uh, you know, it's a fact of our business now, and we just have to deal with it. I mean, frankly, uh, you have to take allergies serious because you don't know if people are genuinely allergic or if they're not, but we take it very seriously. But, but you can accommodate. Yeah, we try our best. I mean, if okay. we can't, we're, we're straight up with the guests. And just say, I, I can't... We can't accommodate that. We can't yeah. accommodate you. I'll bring you up yeah. a head of lettuce and a fork. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the new Italian restaurant, we, I mean, we can't be gluten. We can't do guarantee gluten, uh, gluten-free products because uh, we're, making, we're making dough every day with flour. What's happening with food costs these days? Are there, there are things that you have to keep off the menu that, that you'd love to prepare because the, the costs make it impossible? And for, not for me. For me personally... Uh, 
I look at the mean food cost of the whole menu. So certain uh, high ticket items uh, bring value and bring volume to the menu. So it's just getting the balance of how you want to you know, design your menu and what you want to offer your guests. Because I, I, I go to a seafood restaurant sure. in my neighborhood and they, take, they had to take sturgeon off the menu. It's either sturgeon or mackerel, right. something that I never would have eaten anyway. But I was, <laughs> but I was aggrieved about it. And they said, but you, you know, we used to charge $25 for it. We can't charge $39 for it now. No, it definitely is a numbers game at times. And you guys got you to know your pro- product pricing and you got to know what you can get for it. I don't like to limit my guests. And, and another issue that I, in, in, my, in my day job, I work with the issue of food waste. And this is something that's, that, that should be of a big concern to everyone. Something like a, a one-third of all the food produced in this country goes to waste. Yeah. 70 billion pounds of food a year ends up in landfills. Not all of this is recoverable. You can't recover plate waste. But is, is that ever a concern for you when you're working in your restaurant to really try to manage the amount of food? We're pretty tight in terms of how we work our food costs. So, I mean, we weigh out all our proteins. So we know exactly what we're, uh, what our yields are. So in terms of what we, in terms of uh, our restaurant waste, is pr- pr- quite minimal. But then uh, customer waste is another thing. Um, I, I just keep eating. Yes. I just, I, I always leave a clean plate. <laughs> and you, you're always eyeballing my plate, saying, <laughs> I am. "You're not going to send that back, are yeah. you?" This leads me to another question. You're a a very successful businessman here in Chicago, um, and you happen to be in the hospitality trade. Are you involved, you and your wife and and the rest of the people who are uh, part of your organization, are you involved in a lot of charitable work uh, here in Chicago? We're very, uh, we're very charitable, but as uh, I don't have a specific charity that I uh, that I work with uh, exclusively. My dad is uh, is all his charitable comp- uh, contributions and efforts go through immigration rights and reform. It's it's widely known that the uh, staffs at your restaurants are are extremely loyal and happy. We we know quite a few of them actually personally in their work, and they're proud to be part of the lawless family uh, business. How do you foster such a good workplace attitude with your employees? It's not easy in the employment business in restaurants. There's a lot of... uh, Roscoe, you've worked in the restaurant business. There's a lot of turnover, of course. Oh, absolutely. But I keep running into the same waiters. We were at the Beacon the other day, and you have several servers there who we've met from Acanto or Henri, or they worked at the Gage for a couple of years. How do you foster that kind of loyalty in people? I think just uh, treat them with dignity. Uh, my uh, employees are my greatest asset. I mean, they actually execute and they, they build the, the concepts that I put out there. And without them, they, I wouldn't be successful. I mean, I'm just mainly the sort of the font and they actually make it happen. Uh, and I look after them. You know, they're, I take my role as an employer very seriously in terms of giving them job security. You know, at times I may be the only resource they have if they need help, be it, a, you know, financial or medical. And, you know, I'm always available and always there for them. Have you ever thought about, we touched on this on a previous program, have you ever thought about this new trend of no tipping, of adding just the gratuity to the price of the meal? Uh, has that been something you've, you've considered? Yeah, so that, that's what I grew up with in Ireland. But coming to America was a very different, uh, a very different uh, environment. And... Uh, you know, I've mixed emotions about it. I think, uh, you know, a lot of ways the servers are, are my greatest salespeople, and they really work hard to get uh, to bring a different experience to the guest. And uh, unfortunately, uh, if someone's working in the kitchen, you know, uh, I mean, a dishwasher position, unfortunately, is a very menial uh, position, and 
uh, I mean, it gets uh, it gets uh, remunerated appropriately. Is there a no tip no tipping in Ireland, or do you tip less? Uh, there's a very little tipping in Ireland, and then in restaurants, there's a typically like a twelve percent service charge on the on the bill. And, and then I wouldn't add to that. No. Oh. So they must love it when American tourists don't know that and just automatically add fifteen or twenty percent to their tip. <laughs> I think the American tourists figured out pretty quickly. Uh. I know that uh, this is a big family business, and it's not just you and your wife, but your sisters are also involved in the restaurant business. Um, I, I, I think they just recently opened an establishment in, in Block 37. Yeah, Am yeah. I right about that? They just opened, uh, it's called uh, the Dearborn. It's a fantastic new location right across from uh, the Oriental on the corner of uh, Dearborn and Randolph. That's the Oriental Theater, right? Uh, yeah. 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 And then, so Chloe and Amy, uh, yeah, Chloe and Amy concepted it, you know, they were... They, uh, they opened about three weeks ago. It's a beautiful spot. And dad, dad's their partner there, so it's uh, dad and, the, and my two sisters there. What's the, uh, what's the general cuisine like there? That's uh, just an American bistro. They have, like a, they have a fun sort of bistro-style menu on one side, and then on the other side of the menu, they have a, they have a sort of a, a steak and chop section. Fantastic. I'm sorry that that's not one of the gift cards we're giving away, but we do have cards for a Canto, the Beacon, one. and the Gage. Well, I might have to use that myself. Though. I, don't know if I, can, I don't know if I can give it away. If you have not signed up for our, our mailing list with your email address, please do so before the end of this podcast in the next few minutes because we're going to do a drawing at the end. We're giving away $100 gift cards to three of Billy Lawless's establishments. We like to end our shows with something, Billy, that we've called the kiss of death. Okay. Um, it's, because it's a cheery way to end the show. It's a cheery way. We are, we are fond of celebrating uh, the life of someone who has passed recently and who we've come across uh, their uh, profile that's beautifully written by some of our favorite writers for some of the uh, journalistic uh, publications. The New York Times is yeah. and, one in particular. Yeah. And, and people who are not, not famous, not household names, someone that we've, we've discovered who led an interesting life. Right. Yeah, we, we have someone we'd like to talk about today, a woman named Lorna Kelly. Roscoe? Lorna Kelly left Sotheby's to help the poor. She swept into Calcutta in an Yves Saint Laurent outfit. Her nails were lacquered as red as the priceless antique boxes that she once sold to collectors in her late Manhattan showroom. Why do you wear that stuff? She was asked pointedly by a tiny little woman dressed in white. Lorna Kelly, the Upper East Side socialite and would-be minister to the poor, had just been put in her place by Mother Teresa. (laughs) (laughs) Ms. Kelly, who died at 70, was one of the first female fine art auctioneers in the world attached in the 1970s to Sotheby's in New York City's gallery. For years, Rosewood gavel in hand, she presided over the sale of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of treasures, teasing, cajoling, seducing, and ever so genteelly shaming in the unimpeachable diction of her native England. I'll wait... She might tell a bitter in her foremost schoolmarm tones. Don't look at him, look at me. She used that same tone to immediate effect. This, would, this will amuse you, Billy, to silent ambient conversations in New York restaurants whenever it annoyed her, as it very often did. Miss Kelly was, by her own account, very good at her job. I have the ability to make people feel they could not possibly live without the item that is being auctioned. But as the years progressed, she grew discontent. For one thing, she later said, she felt a spiritual void, and auctioneering no longer felt correct. For another, the outspoken, bohemian Miss Kelly 
had never quite fit into the august, venerable Sotheby's. She could talk a blue streak, which was a fine attribute for an auctioneer, and she also sported a gleeful pink streak in her hair. <laughs> she, had her, she had her hair streaked in pink, pink yes. and she was a Sotheby's auctioneer. Yes. For part of her time there, as she wrote in a self-published spiritual memoir called, and I love the name of this, In the Footsteps of the Camel in 2010, uh, she was also in the grip of alcoholism, unfortunately. And so in the early 1980s, and more or less by mutual consent, Uh, Miss Kelly and Sotheby's parted company. Though she had stopped drinking by then, it was clear that so staid a milieu could not contain her sartorial, tonsorial, and vocal energies. I should mention that this uh, uh, profile is written by one of our favorite authors for the New York Times, Miss Marguerite Fox. She decamped unbidden for India and Mother Teresa, the first in a series of charitable endeavors that occupied her ever after. Lorna Claire Murphy was born on August 12, 1945, in West London, and as a girl was passionately interested in dance. She came to New York at 18 as an au pair, supervised four children under the age of seven, and a few years later she returned to the city permanently, determined to succeed as a modern dancer, supporting herself through secretarial work. In early 70s, a temp agency sent her to Sotheby's, and she found her calling. As soon as I walked through the door at Sotheby's, I knew it was the energy of the marketplace and that it involved beautiful things. But before long, Miss Kelly, with her unbridled mane, profusely beringed fingers, and iconoclastic vintage wardrobe, uh, she was told she would never advance to Sotheby's dark-suited executive ranks. Suppose she countered she were to become an auctioneer instead. So in 1976, she stopped drinking and made her debut behind the rostrum, the very first woman to lead an auction at Sotheby's main New York gallery. To prepare, and we often do this when we prepare our podcasts, she held mock auctions before her mirror. <laughs> <laughs> we do mock, mock podcasts before yeah, our mirrors. Yeah, I stand before our mirror. I highly recommend it. It's extremely entertaining. And on trips to the country outdoors. I sold a lot of stuff to horses and trees, Miss Kelly told the Times at one point. She became a Japanese specialist selling lacquer boxes, netsuki, and other objet d'art. The silver-tongued work exhilarated her. There is no mind wandering. I wish I could conduct the rest of my life life like I do on the rostrum. To do so, she came to believe, she would need to leave the gallery world with its exquisite material comforts behind. This is unbelievable. In Calcutta, she tended determinately ill patients under the tutelage of Mother Teresa, who came to terms with her nail polish and, intrigued, became her lifelong friend. She also traveled to Senegal, where she vaccinated thousands of children In Cairo, she ministered to impoverished residents who lived in a vast garbage dump. She likewise served the poor in Jordan, Gaza, and the Bronx. Yeah, in Manhattan, uh, Miss Kelly worked with AIDS patients. In Texas, she visited death row inmates. Returning to the rostrum, she became a freelance auctioneer for charitable organizations. Speaking of charities, among them, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, for which she raised more than $6 million. Miss Kelly, who in later years weathered cancer treatment and heart surgery, remained sober to the end of her life. Of all of the rigors she faced in her work overseas, it was a domestic undertaking that very likely proved the keenest test of her spiritual commitment. As the Times reported in a 1991 profile, she once traveled to a Buddhist retreat in upstate New York where she spent 
the next 100 days in silence. Something that would drive you insane. <laughs> drive me out of my mind. <laughs> Although you say I never let you talk. You never you, let me you, talk. You, can't, you couldn't be silent for yeah. 100 seconds, yeah. I but, bet. But what a great life. Fantastic. From, from having pink hair and red lacquered fingernails to tending to the poor and downtrodden. Upper East Side socialite, and uh, she gave it all up to go tend to the poor in, in countries around the world. We are Booth One, ladies and gentlemen. Review us on iTunes if you can. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Email us at alist at booth-one.com. You can get a free guide to creating your own Booth One experiences for signing up to our mailing list. And of course, keep on listening. Before I let Mr. Billy Lawless go and we wind up this session, we're going to do our drawing, uh, and I'm going to ask you to draw the first one out of here, Billy, and sure. read, the, read that number off for us. 7822 790. 7822 790. Yes, we have a winner. Come, oh on, my. come on up. Someone, someone is eating well tonight. Round of applause for her. It's only valid on December Thank 2nd. You. What, what's your name, young lady? Debbie, congratulations. I have one for a canto, which is Italian. It's wonderful. The Beacon Tavern, which is sort of an American grill. Hold out yeah. for the chicken fried lobster. The, the, yeah. the sashimi is great. And this is for the Gage. Um, Akanto and the Gage are right next door to each other across the street on Michigan Avenue. You can have either one since you're a first winner. Yay, she uh, takes the Beacon. Congratulations, are, Debbie. Are you from Chicago? Oh, oh you, will, you will enjoy this immensely. It's Ask a, for it's Kevin Grace. He's the GM there. Uh, one more drawing. Well, we actually have two more drawings. Sure. 7822 782. 7822 782. We have another winner. Congratulations. Come on up, fam. Was I eligible to enter this drawing? What's your name, young lady? Just text me. Well, it's Taste of Chicago. She's chewing, and I ask her a question. (laughs) Is it any good? How rude of me. We have Acanto and the Gage left available for you. Congratulations, Acanto. Italian, you'll enjoy it very, very much. I have one more left, and we're going to do that drawing here. 7822784. 784. Hey, hey, hey! Oh, look how excited she is. Come you on up, ma'am. What's your name? Janice. Hey, I'm Janice, Gary. Congratulations. This is for the Gage. The Gage. It's across yeah. the street on Michigan Avenue. I'll be there later. Fantastic. Thanks, great. Have a thanks great for, meal. Thanks for coming by, and thanks for staying. Well, we are Booth One, ladies and gentlemen. Billy Lawless, I want to thank you for being our guest today. Thanks, Gary. Cheers. Been fantastic. Thanks, Russell. Nice Appreciate it. Best of luck on the new place. We'll be sure to come by. Thanks, For mate. Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And I am Roscoe. Saying so long and enjoy the taste of Chicago. Thank you, everyone. Keep listening. Thanks, Gary.